Well, what a week uh, we've had, a week of disappointment and discouragement and frustration and exercise. Um, it's hard uh, where we are. Uh, but my prayer this week has been, as we look at this passage from a chapter which many people believe is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, um, if the book of Romans is the Mount Everest of the Bible, Romans chapter 8 is often called the Mount Everest of the Mount Everest of the Bible, as we look at this passage that God would um, lift our eyes up, um, take us away from the present circumstances and situations, the stresses and the troubles, and give us His peace and His joy, the joy that we have from being filled with His Spirit, from being His people. I'm going to pray to that end, uh, and then we're going to look at this uh, amazing passage together. Let's pray. Father, um, thank You that You are not a silent God, but a God who speaks. You are not a distant God, but a God who cares. Father, You love us, and You love us so much you gave us your word. You tell us who you are, what you love, what you hate. And you tell us how we should live. And most of all, Lord, you gave us your son, Jesus. And Lord, as we think about your word this morning, and we think about um, what it means to be Christian people uh, led by the Spirit, uh, we pray that you take away the distractions of our life and our mind, the current situations and circumstances, and Raise our hearts and souls and eyes to you, to your son Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, um, that we can be gripped and grasped um, by the eternal wonder of the eternal work you are doing. We pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, uh, midway through 2010, I'd been a Christian for around eight or nine months uh, and the first few months of my Christian life had been terrific. I'd been loving Jesus. I'd joined a great church. I was finding out more and more about God and the Bible. And things were going terrifically well. Uh, but after around six months, well, things began to get quite difficult. I began to get plagued with guilt and regret. Guilt and regret of the things that I'd done before I was a Christian, but also guilt and regret of the things that I couldn't stop doing as a Christian. The sin that I just couldn't seem to, to move away from and stop. Um, that guilt and that regret that welled up and it compiled and compounded together and brought about a great sense of fear. Fear that God would lose patience with me. Fear that God would stop loving me. Fear that there's no way I could actually be a Christian because a real Christian wouldn't keep doing the stupid stuff that I keep doing. Fear that actually maybe I wasn't saved. Maybe I wasn't a Christian at all. And it was in that mindset and those emotions that I went to my first ever church weekend away. Now, two incredible things uh, happened on this church weekend away. The first one was I met my wife, um, and that was significant, obviously. Uh, the second one, though, I want to say uh, was also incredibly significant. Midway through uh, the weekend, I bumped in some friends of mine, Joel and Beck, um, and they were part of my church family. You know, I trusted them. That's what church family is. I, I trusted them, and they could see I wasn't going okay, and they asked, what, what's going on, Dave? You don't seem yourself. And so I told them. Guilt, regret, shame, sin, sin, fear. And I remember Beck didn't say anything. Uh, she had a Bible with her. And what a great thing it is to walk around with a physical Bible, particularly at church. You never know when these circumstances will dictate and God will open doors like this. And she opened up a Bible and pulled it open to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And she didn't say anything. She actually shoved it under my face and said, Dave, read this. And dear friends, right at this moment, we're going to have Romans chapter 8, verse 1 put on the screen. 
And in the privacy of your own home, and you shouldn't have anyone with you, so you should be on your own, don't be embarrassed in front of anyone, why don't you read this verse out loud with me as I read it? Romans 8 verse 1 will be on the screen right now, and we're going to read it together. This is what I read around 10 years ago. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again. Will you read it with me? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just hold that for a moment. You know, 10 years ago, as I read those words, I grasped hold of an incredible and eternal truth that no matter what I'd done, where I'd been, what I'd seen, who I'd done it with, all the compounded sin of my prior uh, conversion life and my converted life as a Christian, all of those things, God had forgiven them all. I could stand before him justified and forgiven. I was his and he wasn't letting me go. I wasn't condemned and like an enormous weight of a burden was lifted from me as I understood this incredible truth and I want to say to you today if you are in Christ this morning if you are truly a Christian person then this promise is yours Rachel at the beginning our God is a promise maker he's a promise keeper and you are not condemned, no matter what you've done this morning, what you did yesterday, what you've done in lockdown, what you did in the years preceding. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven. And I don't know if you're the type of person to memorize parts of the Bible. It's a wonderful practice to get into. I highly recommend it. Why don't you start with this one? Why don't you get this one tattooed, neck tattoo? Romans 8 verse 1. Have this bubbling around in your mind as you're driving to work as you're struggling with all types of things. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's quite brief, um, and yet it's powerful and profound. And that's the thing about verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. It is brief, only 13 words. Uh, it is quite short, quite simple to memorize. And yet within its brevity are several profound truths, profound, urgent, and relevant truths for our lives which require uh, investigation and thinking about and dwelling on and grasping hold of. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I reckon there's two questions that automatically spring from this one verse. Question one, how on earth is that possible? Just How is it possible that people like you and me, now no one's watching, just you and me, we know what we're like, that we could stand before God not condemned? How does that work? Two, and perhaps... For some of you, personally, powerfully right now, this question, how do I know for sure? Is there any way of actually truly knowing this is me? I am a Christian. I am not condemned. I'm actually free from my sin and the power of my sin. This is about me or it's not about me. How can we know? Well, first of all, let's go to question number one. How is this even possible? Hopefully you have your Bible in front of you and have a look again at verse eight. Sorry, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 and verse 2. How do I know for sure? So I beg your pardon. How is this actually possible? Verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Look at verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. All of us at one time have been slaves to sin, enslaved to death. 
the law of sin and death. And that word law there is talking about the principle and the power of sin and death. You and I might think before our conversion, or if you're not a Christian here today, you might think, well, I'm neutral spiritually. I'm neither here nor there. That is not what the Bible says. The Romans, the book of Romans has not been subtle, is not subtle about outlining for us and making clear for us where we stand naturally before God. If you have a few moments later, go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 gives an incredible word picture of us. There is no one righteous, verse 10, not even one. All have turned away, none who seek God. Verse 23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that is why, just to the sideline, that is why the statement there is no condemnation is so staggering. Because what we deserve is condemnation. All of us have sinned before a holy and righteous God. All of us deserve to be punished. And yet, verse 1, in Christ, not condemned. Verse 2, through Christ, set free. You see, my dear friends, it's absolutely crucial that we understand that right at the center of Christianity is the concept that to be a Christian person is to be a liberated person. Someone who's been set free from spiritual captivity and enslavement. But here's the key part. Not by your own efforts, energies, and attempts at self-righteousness, but set free by God. You know, it's very, very common. In fact, I would say almost universally common for those outside Christianity. For people to believe that if there is a God, the way I need to get right with him or her or them, well, I need to be good. In fact, every other religion in the world preaches and proclaims some version of this concept. If there is a God up there, I need to be good for that God to impress my way into their favour. And so people try and be good or moral or religious. And then here's what's absolutely crucial for us to maybe hear for the first time or remind ourselves of again and again. The truth of being liberated means we are not set free from sin and death because of anything we have done. We are set free because God did for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. Look at verse 3. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. We are unable to be good enough for God. None of us can keep up to his law. None of us keep the standard of God's holy law. Our failure to keep his law has proven that. Our enslavement to sin and to death is evidence of those things. However, the law must still be met. Punishment must still be kept. And so God did for us what we are unable to do. He did so by sending Jesus. You know, Jesus did many, many things when he was alive. People love to hypothesize about the true meaning and purpose of Jesus, that he was a peacemaker, a peacekeeper, that he was a healer, that he was a preacher, that he came to preach love to the world. And he did all of those things. I want to say, Amen, Alleluia. But understand that right at the core of the mission, the purpose of Jesus is his death. Jesus died for you. He died. Jesus came to take and he came to give. 
He came as a sacrifice, an offering for sin in the likeness of sinful flesh. When he died, something incredible took place. Jesus took our sin as his own. And so our sin, all of it, was condemned in his flesh. He took our punishment. But that is not the end of what Jesus did on that cross. Look at verse 4 again. He didn't just take, he also gave. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. His righteous life, his obedience transferred to us. This is what we call the great exchange. Everything we've ever done, taken by Jesus, he became sin, but also everything he ever did, his obedience, his righteousness, his law-keeping, his holiness is ours. And this isn't just a nice little fact of Christianity. This is an utterly necessary thing. The requirements of God's law must be kept. They had to be met. And they were met by Jesus. Jesus met them and he gave them to us. Our sin on Christ. His righteousness on us. And what that means is that if you are a Christian, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the culmination of your sin. He sees his son. His son. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what it means to be in Christ. And many of you know this, but some of you don't. My dear friends, understand, this is the only hope we have. Several of you will know that um, prior to being here at EV, my wife and I uh, were living overseas. We were living in Belfast in the United Kingdom in Northern Ireland. Beautiful city, definitely worth a visit in 2036. Whenever you can get over there, check it out. However, it all came to a rapid end when COVID hit. We were surrounded by people on the news and in the flesh telling us that we had to leave. ScoMo, Gladys, our families, people there, go, go, come, come. We had to get out of there quick. However, there was one slight problem, not a slight one, an enormous one. How could we leave? There was no way possible. We couldn't drive, we couldn't swim, we couldn't walk, we couldn't bicycle, we couldn't go on a boat. The only avenue open to us was to fly. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but all the airports shut down and, and stopped allowing flights. Singapore, Dubai, all shut. All the airlines shut. There was people stranded at airports everywhere trying to leave the countries they were in to get home. We knew that was the truth. We knew, my goodness, we're in big trouble here. There was only one hope, and that hope had a red tail and a kangaroo on it. It was Qantas. Now, Qantas were unable to fly from the UK to Sydney and, and Australia because Dubai and Singapore were shut, but we heard a rumour that Qantas were introducing a brand new flight flying from London direct to Darwin, and they were only allowing Australians on it. And so we hit the phone, and after a 12-hour wait on the phone, we realised, my goodness, this is going to be very, very difficult to get tickets. There's thousands of people trying to do it. Finally, we got through. After ages and ages and ages of begging and cajoling and offering our firstborn and all sorts of things, they finally came back and said, yes, there's five seats available. You can have them. They're yours. One problem. It's leaving tomorrow. My wife and I sat there in our couch and we looked at our fridge, our washing machine, our microwave, all of our, the entire house we were in, and we realized 
we have to go. And so we got up and we packed as much as we could and we got everything together and we went. And let me tell you, when we got to Heathrow Airport, if you've been to Heathrow before, hundreds of, like it's just an enormous, it's crazy enough normal. In the midst of COVID, March, April 2020, it was insane. That board which has every single flight on it, flight delayed, flight delayed, flight delayed, flight delayed, flight delayed. But there was our one, Qantas. Finally, it said boarding. And you saw every Australian jump up like we just got it awarded the Sydney Olympics all over again. Like everyone jumped up and ran towards the gate with their little blue passports in tow. We got there and we showed the Qantas people our blue passports. Here's Australians. We get in and we got into the plane. Let me assure you though, it wasn't until we were in the plane, we were taxiing, we got in the air that my wife and I looked at each other and we realised we've made it. We're on the way. There was only one hope we had to put all our dependence on it. There was no other way. The only hope we had was to get in the plane to fly. And Qantas promised to get us safely home, and they did. My dear friends, when we stop trying to earn our way to heaven, when we stop trying to be good enough and righteous enough and moral enough, when we realize there is no other way, only Christ... When you trust in him, he will carry you home. We are not condemned. We are safe and secure. God is a promise maker and promise keeper. Christ has taken our sin and given us his righteousness. And that means we need not fear, worry, fret or freak out. We are his, safely in his hands now and forever. But there is something very important here that we need to realize, and you see it there in verse 1, and you see it again in verse 2. You need to take note of who this promise is for. Just like Qantas were only allowing Australians, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a promise for Christians only. Now, don't mishear me, of course. Anyone can become a Christian. But there is no way of grasping hold of this eternal promise outside of Christ and what he's done. That's the only way. And so that leads us to our second big question. In fact, probably the big question that many of us are struggling with and continue to struggle with in my experience. Am I included in this way? Can we know for sure that I'm in? Can I know for sure that I'm not condemned? How can I know? Is there evidence of my being a Christian? Is there evidence that I'm going to heaven? Or is there evidence that actually it's not real, that I'm just fake, it's not the real deal? Well, I think there is, and the rest of the passage makes it very clear to us that not only can we know, but there's evidence of knowledge. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. He condemns sin in the flesh, we've read, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. In other words... We give Jesus our sin, we take his righteousness then, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our sin taken by Jesus, his righteousness given to us, and then the Apostle Paul, the writer of Romans, draws a straight line between these great actions of Christ and the life that is lived as a result. Let me put it as simply as I can. There is two ways to live. Those who live in Christ live according to the Spirit. 
Those who are not in Christ live according to the flesh, or as that's sometimes translated, according to the sinful nature. So what does that mean? What that means is simple. The evidence for whether you are in Christ or not in Christ will be found in the life that you live. So are you living according to the Spirit or according to the sinful nature, according to the flesh? Well, how can you tell? Well, Paul then helpfully gives us clarity about what both these types of lives will look like. Let's consider both of them in turn. The the non-Christian life, that lived according to the flesh, the sinful nature, and the Christian life lived according to the Spirit. Come, first of all, to verse 5 and 8. And let's consider those who live according to the flesh, the non-Christian life. How is the non-Christian described in this passage? Well, it might surprise you because it's not what you might think. You might think, ah, there's going to be a description of a non-Christian. This is going to describe wickedness and evil and sinfulness, a horrible list of sins. But no, look at verse 5. Those who live according to their flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Verse 6 says the same. Verse 7 repeats it again. The life of the non-Christian person, those who live according to the sinful nature, is defined by how they think, what they desire, and just as importantly, who they do it for. And dear friends, you will never understand what this means until you understand the definition, the biblical definition of the word sin. If you think sin just means like a list of horrible and wicked things, well, I want to say, well, you're partially right. That is an example of sins, but that's not the definition of sin itself. At its core, the heartbeat of sin is found in a rejection of God rejecting his reign and rule over your life. And it's that which leads to death from verse 6. I think one of the best descriptions of sin and sinfulness and life according to the sinful nature is found in verse 7. Have a look. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You see, the heartbeat of sin is fanned in hostility to God, refusing to submit to Him as God. And that's why the sinful nature here is not described as immorality or amorality or wickedness. And in fact, flip that over. That's why it's very possible to be a non-Christian person and be absolutely moral and self-righteous and good and kind and lovely. Of course it is. Some of the loveliest people I know are people who aren't Christians. And if you're not a Christian, we're not saying you're, a, you're evil, more evil and wicked than anyone. That's not what we're saying at this point. Not in that way, not regarding behavior and morality, no. The heart of the issue is not just what you do, it's who you do it for. And if your entire heart is turned away from God, if you refuse to acknowledge Him as King, you refuse to accept His offer of salvation, then it doesn't matter what you do. Look at verse 8 for one of the most chilling verses describing those outside of Christ. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. When I was growing up, the best rugby league player in the world was a bloke by the name of Wally Lewis. Wally Lewis's nickname was and still is the king. He was the greatest league player I'd ever seen in the 80s and 90s. Let me give you a little bit of a Word picture from his official biography. I hope he didn't write this himself. This is what he says. Wally Lewis is regarded by many as the greatest rugby league player ever. 
He will be remembered for his ability to control a football game, conjure passes from the inconceivable, inspire his teammates, and a passing game that redefined the sport. Let me put it as simple as I can. Wally Lewis was the greatest rugby league player in the world. His skill set was unbelievable. He could dominate games like no one I had ever seen. He was absolutely amazing. And I absolutely hated him. I loathed him. There was not a player I disliked more. Why? Because the unfortunate truth was the chief primary means of his domination was when he was playing for Queensland, the enemy, against my team, New South Wales. And that meant no matter what he did, how well he did it, no matter how well he controlled a game, I could never appreciate it because he was wearing the wrong jersey. He was playing for the wrong team. His skills were displayed in the opposition to my team. My, my friends, do you see? You can be kind and generous, generous and charitable and lovely. Of course you can. Of course you can. But don't think for a heartbeat. Stop thinking that it will please God. Because on its own, outside of acknowledging God for who he is and accepting his reign and rule over your life, all of it is done in opposition to him. So that's what life is according to the flesh. But what about the Christian life or the spirit-filled life? Look at verse 5 again. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. And what you see begin to emerge here is that the Christian, in direct opposition to the non-Christian, lives their life, has their mind set, their actions focused on, not the flesh, but what the Spirit desires. But how do you know if you're led by the Spirit? And what does that look like? Well, it's worth pausing for a few moments here uh, so we get clear on what this passage means when it talks about the Holy Spirit. There's much here for, what, for us to learn. Um, 20 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter 8, so there's much, much in there. Uh, first of all, look at verse 9. We begin by noting that the Spirit is referred to in several different ways. In verse 9, it's three times alone. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Are these several spirits? No. This is the one Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is God, the eternal member of the Trinity, the triune Godhead. This is the same Holy Spirit, the one and only, who has been at work since before the beginning of the creation of the world, and He is still at work today. And the primary means of His work that is revealed to us in the New Testament is in the lives of Christians, the believers. But how? How is the Spirit at work in the life of the believer? Well, again, it might be different to what you think. I reckon it's fair to say that over the last 100 to 150 years, there's been a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit, who He is, what He does, um, which has resulted in a lot of confusion. Um, and a lot of people thinking perhaps I'm not a Christian when they are, a lot of people think they are Christians when they're not, all types of things. When I first became a Christian, um, I knew a bloke, I met a bloke who assured me that God routinely spoke to him um, and prompted him to go and speak to other people. He told me once God woke him up in the middle of the night and told him to go to a pub and there he'd find a man in a blue t-shirt and he was to go and speak to that man and lo and behold he went and he did that. I thought, well, that must be what it is to be a spirit-filled person, to be led by the Spirit. And so I began to pray for that to happen. But when it didn't happen in my life, I thought, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not. 
I had another friend who became a Christian and she joined a church where they believed that you had two realms of Christian, two sort of um, categories of Christian, the normal Christian and the spirit-filled Christian. And to become a spirit-filled Christian was always, always, always evidenced by speaking in tongues. And so she'd been a Christian for around three or four weeks and her Bible study circled around her and put their, their hands on her and prayed and told her to start trying to say words in her mouth, thinking to speak in tongues. When she wouldn't, when she couldn't, they were very disappointed and she ended up thinking, well, maybe I'm not filled by the Spirit. Now, I want to acknowledge those are fairly extreme examples. Far more common, I think, is the concept that to be a Spirit-filled Christian is to be someone who feels, experiences the Spirit. This can happen in emotions, during music, in some other type of experiential way. Goosebumps and tingles, we think that's the Spirit, that's God speaking. We might think it's the Spirit's role primarily to guide us and prompt us, this job, that husband or wife, this suburb to live in. But what does the Bible say? That's the key question, isn't it? What does the Bible say? What does Romans 8 tell us is the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer? And what evidence does the Spirit provide that we are actually Spirit-filled people? Well, Romans 8, as I said, mentions the Holy Spirit 20 times. It's several different ways the Spirit works, but there's three ways in particular that I want us to quickly focus on, which I think provide not just the transformation that all of us so earnestly desire and need, but also the evidence for transformation. First of all, verse 2, a new creation. Have a look. Verse 2, we've already looked at that we are in spiritual captivity but set free by the Spirit who gives life. It's absolutely crucial when you think of the Holy Spirit that you understand that the Spirit is intimately involved in your salvation. Yes, it is God the Father who planned and sent Jesus. Yes, it is Jesus himself who went to the cross and made our salvation available for us. But it is the Spirit who applies it to our life. You are not saved until the Spirit comes into your life, bringing you into union with Christ. And through union with Christ, the taking of your sin, the application of his righteousness. It is the Spirit, my friends, who reveals the truth of the gospel, who breathes life into our sinful souls, who moves us from hostility to hope, from enmity to eternal life, from rebellion to relationship. And what that means crucially right now for us to understand is that there is not two different realms of Christian. There's not the ordinary Christian and the spiritual Christian. If you are a Christian, you are by necessity and definition a spirit-filled Christian. To be saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit is the only normal and authentic Christian life. And we see this so beautifully in our very own salvation. The Spirit lives and dwells in you. He's at work in you applying the great salvation of Christ. But he doesn't finish by making you a new creation, by liberating you from spiritual captivity. Secondly, he creates within you a new desire and a new obligation. Look at verse 5. Those who live in accordance with their spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. Now, it's clearly put to us here that the mind, your mind, my mind, governed by the Holy Spirit, has itself set on what the Spirit desires. But what is it that the Spirit desires? I think verse 12 and verse 13 are helpful here. Come forward. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, 
not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. One of the Spirit's great desires in your life is that you kill sin. You flee from sinfulness and instead flee towards obedience, holiness, godliness. And on, a, on a practical way, in a practical level, I want to say one of the ways this works in the life of the Christian is initially a newfound, but over time a prolonged awareness and a hatred of sin and a desire to be rid of it. It's not a, a, a make-believe Pollyanna picture of a future sinless existence you will have here on earth that is not going to happen in your body or mind. The Bible never says this, but rather the struggle against the sin that you did. The idea that the things you once did you now hate and the things you continue to do you hate even more because you realize they're offensive to God. And because you know that, you're in the struggle. The struggle to eradicate the sin from your life. The struggle to live like Jesus. And I want to say to you today that the struggle with sin, if that is what you're experiencing, is not evidence of the Spirit's absence. It's evidence of the Spirit's presence. What you should be concerned about is surrender to sin, not struggle. Surrender, which justifies, which explains away, which minimizes. Surrender, which suddenly says, no, 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 the, the, the modern world has, has developed and now the Bible isn't relevant anymore and I can do what I want, when I want, however I want. The Bible... That's surrender to sin. Struggle? Well, that's why we're told to put the misdeeds of the body to death. Live for the Spirit. Year by year, day by day, turn from sin, live for Him. And as I said before, one of the ways this practically plays itself out is in a growing awareness of sin. Perhaps for the first time, an awareness of how wretched the life we've been living is. We get a snapshot of it, a new snapshot, a whiff of it, and we realise that it stinks. A few weeks ago, I was at a party, not an adult party, no one invites me to adult, I was at a children's birthday party. Um, and when I was there, I was talking to the host of the party for around 20 minutes. After we finished talking, I went to the bathroom. After I went to the bathroom, I came out of the bathroom and there the host was waiting for me with his hand behind his back. And I thought, what is doing? I walked past him and quick as a flash, he put his hand underneath my shirt and sprayed me with like a litre of deodorant. It was coming out the top of my collar. I said, what are you doing? He said, doing you a favour, and us. The Holy Spirit's a little bit like that. It's allowing you to whiff the smell you've been walking around with obliviously. Allowing you to catch hold of, hold on, this stinks. I don't want to do it anymore. At one time you did it, it was no problem, but now you're under new management, you're wearing a new jersey, you have new desires, a new obligation. One of those evidences that we're talking about is the fight against sin. So we have the new creation accomplished through the cross, applied through the Spirit. Secondly, the new desire, the new obligation, the evidence of being found of God's Spirit being found with the struggle against sin. But thirdly, we'll listen to what the struggle against sin points to in verse 14 for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God 
Verse 15 continues, we are adopted by God. We have the permission and the privilege of calling him Abba and Father, an adoption brought about by the Holy Spirit. My friends, we have a new identity in Christ, adopted by God as his children. No longer rebels, under condemnation, no longer enemies, covered in our sinfulness. We haven't just been justified. We've been adopted, brought into God's family with all the blessings and benefits that this entails. One of the greatest books of the 20th century is Knowing God by uh, J.I. Packer. I can't recommend it enough. It's a terrific book. You have to get it. Listen to what he writes about adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and whole outlook of life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. He goes on, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. You know, adoption in the ancient world existed probably even more beautifully than it does today. It meant grafting someone from outside the family into the family fully and completely and bestowing upon them all the rights that will come to the natural-born child. No ifs, no buts, completely. And they are chosen, not by their performance, the young child, but by the desire of the parent. To be adopted as God's child means that God is now your father. It's one of the greatest blessings and privileges of being a Christian. And it provides two key proofs, two key proofs and evidences of the Spirit's work in your life. Firstly, look at verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Let me ask you, if I say to you, you are adopted by, Christ, adopted by God, you are, you are now able to call God Father, how does that make you feel? Do you think that's true? Is that what your soul testifies you and says, yes, amen, yes, that is what's happened. But there's another evidence. You see, it also affects our fight with sin and it explains our struggle with sin. The struggle we have with sin is evidence that our relationship with God is not just that of the judge who set free the enemy, but rather that the relationship we have, the love we have, is between God and child through Christ. The motivation we have to put our sin to death, to put to death the misdeeds of the body, is not due to a fear of condemnation. We know we're not condemned. But rather, out of the spirit of being a child of God. And a newfound desire to please the Father who has adopted us into his family, do you see? No longer afraid of the, the punishment and condemnation that will come if we don't do the right thing, but now living free with the privilege of doing the right thing because we love our Father who has adopted us and brought us out of darkness to light. And so let's just take a step back for a moment and um, reassess what we've learnt. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, threefold that we looked at, to apply a new creation, a salvation in you, 
to create in you new desires and a new obligation to testify to you that you've been adopted as God's child. My friends, that is what God says His Spirit will do, and that is the evidence of your salvation. So what do we do with emotions and feelings and promptings, miraculous signs and wonders? I'm not saying those things are wrong or that God won't and can't use emotions and feelings and promptings and miracles. He can, he does, he will. But we shouldn't expect them. And most importantly, their absence is not evidence of his absence. Do you feel that? If they don't happen in your life, that is not evidence that God is not at work and God hasn't been at work. No, the evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you is that you live according to the Spirit rather than the flesh. And you see it played out when your mind is governed by the knowledge of your salvation, with the privilege of being God's child. And so your hatred of sinfulness, your hatred of disobeying your Father, it is then when you see your life change, when you become more like Jesus. Jesus, who was filled by the Spirit. Jesus, who delighted to obey God. Jesus, who rejoiced in his sonship. And so it's not primarily in experiences that we see the Spirit at work, but in effects, change, transformation, growth. So let me ask you, do you know for sure where you stand with God? Is it possible for you today, right now, this morning to proclaim that you are under no condemnation. It could be that you've been someone who's constantly looking for assurance that you've been saved, but you've been looking in all the wrong places. You've been looking for um, the miraculous or the overtly supernatural. You have a dependence on the emotional or, or the instinctively sort of goosebump, tingly moments. When those things are happening, when you're singing your favorite song, when you're reading your favorite passage, when you're standing overlooking your your famous view and scenic spot, then you feel God, but when it's not, then you begin to doubt. Is that you? Or perhaps you've got the opposite problem. You're someone who doesn't worry about it at all, but you should. Perhaps you made a profession of faith at some point in your life and you think, well, I've done that once, I'm, I'm covered for the rest of my life. Or perhaps... You were brought up in a church-going family, a Christian family. You've always identified, self-identified as a Christian. And you think, well, that's what what really matters, is that I self-identify this way. And and that means I'm fine. Your Christianity is moderately important to you, but it's not everything. Something you're happy enough to go on with, but resulted in no change in your life. No transformation in your heart, your hands, your head, your soul. So where do you stand with God? Well, let me ask you three questions. Firstly, are you sensing and seeing and struggling with the Spirit's desire within you to become more and more Christ-like? Are you alive to sin? You know who you are, what you do. You don't deny it. You don't minimize it. You don't justify it. You're trying instead to conquer it and fight it. You know that God is not promising a part of your life which will be sinless, this side of glory, this side of Christ's return. But you do know you're utterly committed to trying to rid yourself of these misdeeds. Is that you? Secondly, 
Do you know inside your heart and your mind that God is your Father despite everything that you've done? Are you resolved as a result of that not to live for yourself but to live for Him? Do you relate to Him in that way? Not as a distant uncle or a cuddly toy, but as a holy, perfect, loving Father. You know what He's about. And you're striving to be about what He's about to make Christ the centre of your life. If you've had those two things happen in your life, I want to encourage you and say those things are evidences of the Spirit's work. But all of those things mean nothing if you don't answer the third question correctly. Here's the third question. Who is your faith in? Is it in you, your righteousness, your goodness, your performance? Or is it in Christ Jesus, the one who took your punishment and gave you his righteousness? You see, you can try and fight sin. The world is full of people trying to stop doing bad things. Absolutely. You can try and call God Father. There's millions of people, I'm sure, throughout history who have called God Father and yet do not know him at all. But my dear friends, if your faith is not in Christ Jesus for salvation then it is all a loss. It's all meaningless. So how do you know if you're saved? Because you've put your faith in Christ. You trust in Him. That's what it's all about. That's the centre. That's the heartbeat. And I want to say to you this morning that if you do, if you do trust in Christ, then my friends, you need never worry, fret, concern yourself, be anxious You need never wonder, am I truly saved? Will I really go to heaven? You need never look for additional signs and wonders. You don't need to depend on your emotions and your feelings. You don't need to add to your salvation by good works. You can know where you stand with full and certain assurance because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And the better you grasp not just the consequence of your salvation, but the cause, the cross of Christ, that Jesus Christ died for you and rose from the dead to show that he's conquered death, the more you will understand and delight in God's great work. This is a promise for you. And no matter what's happening around the world at the moment, no matter what your week or your day has looked like, no matter the stress or anxiety you have about COVID, this trumps it all. You are God's and he is yours. Delight in it. Rejoice in it. It's the great promise of all eternity. But if you don't trust in Jesus, well, my friends, if that is you, I want to say to you, it's not too late. But don't delay. You can be forgiven. There is nothing you've done which can't be forgiven. The promise of justification and adoption of no condemnation that comes in Christ can be yours. But it will never happen while you put it off, delay it, and continue to reject God, His reign, His rule. My friends, we don't know what the future holds. But whatever it looks like, every minute that we spend in hostility to God is too many. The plane will be taking off soon, far sooner than you know. Trust in Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith.
if you're interested in finding out more about Jesus, I'd love to, as Rach said earlier, invite you along to life or explaining Christianity. Get in contact with us at church. We'd love to talk to you about that, um, to share with you the great news more and more. Let me finish my time together in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Jesus, who died, who rose again. He did so, and so we are a new creation through the Spirit. We have new desires through the Spirit. And through the Spirit, we have adoption as your children. Lord, help us to grasp hold of that and rejoice in it. To know deep down its truthfulness. This is our identity. Who we are, whose we are. Lord, I pray for those here watching who aren't Christians, who know right now, maybe for the first time, that they're living according to the sinful nature, that they've rejected to you, they cannot please you. Lord, I pray for your Spirit's work in their hearts, letting them know they can't please you, but also bringing them to you, revealing your truth, taking them from hostility to holiness, from enmity to eternal life, trusting in Jesus. I pray this all in the name of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.